family, I'm so happy to announce the launch of my brand new premium podcast. It's called Ideas That Matter Plus. This is an exciting new development that we've been working on for some time. This after seeing a lot of you request coming through saying thank you for what we've done and wanting more. Ideas That Matter Plus is a more targeted podcast that focuses on business strategies and more high-level thinking to help highly ambitious entrepreneurs, SMEs, business owners and founders, even the CEOs of big business. It only costs 450 Rand per month and will be coming in, but I mean coming in hot. So, subscribe now to Ideas That Matter Plus, now available on Spotify or Apple Podcast Store. Sayonara. Hi, Vusi. How are you? My name is Kumbirach Panza. I'm a Zimbabwean based in Germany. Uh, I listened to VT podcast and last week I listened to what to do when you're feeling stuck. When you say the Lord humbles you so that he can exalt you, you can be reduced so that you can be increased. Earlier this year, I got into debt. I was in troubles with my last startup that I had. In that period, I was also transitioning into a new startup whereby now I can happily say that we got an investment of seven figures and I'm into mining technology. I followed you for quite a while and I would like to say that your podcasts not only inspire me, but they guide me. You might not know me, but you, might, you are my mentor. And through your teachings, I also mentor others. Keep at it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Hello, family. Hello, Vusi. This is Mpole Dwaba here, all the way from South Africa, now living in Pretoria. Um, currently doing my internship in uh, medicine, so I graduated last year. I've been a fan of yours from, I think, 2015, and I've been listening to your videos on YouTube in my varsity years, and uh, especially your master classes, because you always drop gems there. Um, I used to be so bad that I used to put one of your master class or your videos under my pillow when I'm about to sleep. It was so bad that my girlfriend ended up complaining about it. Your podcast is great. I enjoyed some of the, the podcast, especially the one about submarines and uh, the one about the Chonos and Kairos and recently the one about high heels. I just uh, enjoy the ones where you go into research and you give us something new. It's not just something from your experience, but it's both uh, experience and stuff that you read about. And uh, that's so great uh, to hear that perspective of life rather than uh, all the experiences, rather than just from experience. Uh, I have one question to you, Busi. Um, I'm recently at a, at a point where I'm working every day, nine to five, some days longer. And um, I've always wanted to go into entrepreneurship, but I'm stuck between starting a business, a kind of business that already exists, kind of uh, businesses that people have known to scale in, uh, businesses that you know that there's already like templates that are formed in those businesses and stuck between that and starting a new business that doesn't exist not doesn't exist but it's not common in my area it's kind of a new business that might take time 
Uh, so I'm just wondering, uh, which businesses do you think as like a person who just started in business should go into a business that there's already a template for or one that uh, kind of a road less traveled? Uh, thank you. It's time to take your seat at the table. Find out how with Vulsi Tembeguayo as we discuss ideas that matter. A catalyst for bold action. Hello, family. <laughs> Hello, family, and welcome to another episode of the VT Podcast. And here we talk about ideas that matter. That was Mpoledwaba coming in from Johannesburg, South Africa. I think he said, oh, is it Pretoria? And Paul was asking a question about what to do if you're thinking about starting a business, where to go next and where to look at the opportunities. Now, typically, as you guys would know, I would lead into this with some long soliloquy, maybe even a, a smooth song behind the scenes. But on this one, I'm so excited. I just want to jump straight into it. So there are a few things I've got to say. First and upfront, as huge, huge mindset shifts, Paul, for you thinking about starting a business. This is true, too, for anybody in the community, in the VT family, who's thinking about starting a business and might be asking themselves the same questions. I have a number of ideological kind of viewpoints, uh, beliefs, if you will, about entrepreneurship and owning a business. These are my ideological viewpoints. They're not necessarily substantiated or backed up by science data. In fact, they're predominantly backed up by the science that I choose to read and more importantly, the examples that I choose to take example from of other business leaders who've done things that I find interesting and or exciting. But that notwithstanding, let me first establish what it is that are my core beliefs. The reason I want to establish in Paul what my core beliefs are is because my recommendations will only make sense if you and I agree on the core beliefs. If we don't agree on the core beliefs, then my recommendations, right, won't won't hold water because you might see the world differently to how I see the world and then therefore might want to approach it differently to how I would want to approach it. So what are my core beliefs then about starting a business? First, if it's easy, I tend not to want to do it. I don't like easy businesses. The reason I don't like easy businesses is because I know and have learned over the years that if it's easy for me, it's going to be easy for the next guy too. And easy businesses are easy replicatable. That's why they're easy right? They're easily replicatable, easily, easily duplicatable, and the next person can copy your formula. And I'm going to give you some examples of what this means when you see other people doing easy things, and then therefore other people copying the easy things that are done. Now, let me just say very, very quickly, the business model is easy. The business is not. So just because the business model is easy doesn't mean that I'm saying the founders who've built those businesses haven't been working hard. It doesn't mean that I'm saying that their work and effort wasn't put in. It doesn't mean that I'm saying that they didn't have to be industrious, that they didn't have to look for the opportunity set and pull together a unique set of assets to make themselves win. That's not what it is that I'm saying. I'm simply saying that the model around which the business revolves is easy to replicate. And the minute the model is easy to replicate, you can bet your bottom dollar that once you succeed at it, other people are going to replicate it too. There are tons of examples like this, right? Think about, for instance, MLM businesses, what we call multi-level marketing businesses. If you uh, grew up in the township, as I did, you had always that lady next door who was selling Tupperware. Do you remember that lady? And she would call it Tupperware meeting for all the ladies in the streets, and she would demonstrate her Tupperware. 
Now, her business was selling Tupperware to other women who used Tupperware. Then what she would do is she would recruit some of the women in the room to go and sell Tupperware themselves. She would do this because the ranking system in multi-level marketing businesses requires not only that you sell the product, but also that you recruit other people to sell the product. It's a dual-led income stream. For every product you sell, you make money. For every product somebody you recruited sells, you make money again. But then what began to happen? Well, we started seeing multi-level marketing businesses in cookery. So you saw it in uh, pots and Tupperware and all sorts of things. You started seeing it even in financial services. The very concept of IFA, the business owned by clientele, is uh, consultants, financial consultants who go into townships and sell financial products. But it's a multi-level marketing business. It doesn't mean the business is easy. I want to be clear. It means the business model is easy. And because the business model is easy, the business model is easily replicatable. How many people have you seen on social media trying to sell you some sort of Forex trading bot? You've noticed that, right? Like in your DMs, there's always somebody who says they're going to make you money. I turned $1,000 into $25,000 and I want to really thank this person for helping me do that in three months. And once you start a conversation with them, it almost always has to do with you either giving them your money to trade for you, which by the way, yeah. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you breaking news. Never, ever, 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 ever give your money to somebody you've never met to do something that they have not proven themselves to do in a category with a product that they are not licensed to sell and that person is hiding some sort of opaque social media page. It's 2023, you're smarter than that. Stop getting scammed by scammers. That shit is tired. Back to studio. Now, now that we got that out the way, so the first thing about my philosophy is that I don't like business models that are easy. It doesn't mean that I don't try to make my business models more efficient and easy in businesses that I'm either in or invested in, but I don't like business models that are easily available and easily uh, dissectable and can be analyzed by the average person on the street. I don't like it. And I don't like it because I know that it removes my competitive advantage. That's the first of my beliefs. If you differ with that belief, that's fine. But over the years, as an investor into startups, now as an investor into scale-ups, one of the things I've learned is that if the person or the business I'm investing in has a business model that is easily replicatable, their chances of failure are infinitely higher. Infinitely higher. Right. So, first... I don't like business models that are easy. Second thing about my belief system, every business takes time, commitment, and being convicted. Let's just pause here for a minute. And Paul, you asked in your question, you said, what kind of business can I get into that's not going to take up a lot of time? This is why I'm giving you these disclaimers up front. I personally don't like businesses that are not going to require some time to be committed to them. Why? Because I just, I don't know how to operate as a moonlighter. That's not how I do things. I don't operate as a moonlighter and I don't operate as somebody looking for a way to make a quick buck and then move on to the next thing. If I'm doing something, I don't do anything that I can't see myself doing for the next 10 years. As a consequence, I don't look for businesses where there is, there is no need for me to invest my personal time and intellect. So first, it's going to require time. Second, commitment. And what is commitment? Commitment is the, the idea that even when it's not 
are cool to do it, you're going to still want to do it. Even when you don't feel like doing it, you're still going to do it. But more importantly than commitment is being the third, convicted. How do you know when you're convicted? It's quite simple. How much of your personal money and name is behind that business? If your personal money is not behind that business, you're not convicted enough. And if your personal name and reputation is not behind that business, you're not convicted enough. Notice then my first comment about these businesses that, that require low frequency of commitment where the business model is easily replicatable. If I'm going around and selling a product into a township, say, and the product might be Tupperware, say, I take neither the personal commitment on money, certainly not the kind of money that is substantial, let's be clear. I'm not saying people in those businesses don't put in their own money to buy product. I'm saying it's not the kind of money that's substantial relative to their personal net worth, first. Second, they can always move on. I have friends who work in multi-level marketing, and with all the love and respect, they are constantly moving on from selling one product to the next product, to the next product, to the next product, because what they've realized is that their actual business model is building a community that makes money. It's not selling the product. So the products are commodities that they trade. Today, it might be an investment product. Tomorrow, it might be something that you actually buy and use. They're not as married to the commitment of the product. They're not as convicted about the product as they are about the community that they're building. So I look for businesses where there is going to be a need for time, commitment, and being convicted. These are my fundamental philosophies. The third philosophy for me is I look for the business where I have what I call the BOTW, the best opportunity to win. Now, there are some businesses where you have the opportunity to compete. I don't like those businesses. Many years ago, I was an investor and a majority shareholder in a construction company. We did predominantly public sector work. We had a, in South Africa, we had a CIDB grading eight at the peak of that business. And I got out of that business. Do you want to know why? Because the business was great, but it was a competitive business. The margins were low. The opportunity to scale that business and take it to the next level was constantly, constantly under threat. And you're constantly chasing public sector work, which is driven by tenders. And the reputational risk attached to some of those things that happen for people to get the tenders is way too high for me to be in a business that's commoditized where I'm competing for margins on the sense. Does that make sense? So we had the ability to execute, and we did do. It was a great business, and it was competitive. But we were not winning. I don't like a business where I'm out of the consideration set of the top four players in any market. If I'm in any business, the first thing I ask myself is, are we going to be in the top four in this category, in this market, within a foreseeable period of time? If we're not, it's not something I'm going to do. Now, to be clear, there are many people who do exceptionally well, run great businesses, and build an immense amount of wealth running an everyday business that's competitive. They run a car dealership. They run a fuel station, petrol station, the South Africans would call it, right? Great businesses. Generate cash, very cash generative, margins are low, but demand is guaranteed. That's not personally how I look at businesses. How I look at businesses is do I have the BOTW, the best opportunity to win? Coincidentally, we've been looking at the energy sector because we have in the Timber Legacy Group some energy assets. 
And I said to my team, I said, I'm interested in looking at the energy sector, particularly the hydrocarbon sector, as people are moving to renewables, not because, not because the hydrocarbon sector is dying, which people think it is. And if you do, and you live in the emerging of frontier economies, by the way, you're wrong. Hydrocarbon energy is not dying. There is a shift, of course, in the capacity of how we're producing energy from hydrocarbon to renewable. But our markets are at least 30 years behind any substantial increase in renewables to the extent that it harms hydrocarbon. That's my personal view. I, I just don't see how you're going to have a Tesla driving on the streets of Makoko in Nigeria, not over the next 10 years. I don't see it. And so that notwithstanding, my thesis is that we can build a business in hydrocarbon energy. And we've built the thesis, by the way. The only thing we're working on now is the team is not how do we build a business. It's not how do we compete. It's how do we win? What are we going to do so unique that everybody else in the sector is either going to play catch up to us or we're going to be in the top four in the category in the market? That's how I do business. These three fundamental principles are how I approach business. It's not how everybody does it, but it's how I do it. If you agree with these three, your question then was, how do I build a business given the context of the environment that I'm in? Well, let's take, let's take example, Paul, and you will know this. In South Africa, there is what I like to call the sneaker cartel. These are uh, the young people between the ages of uh, typically late 20s, early 30s, just before their 40s, who started these sneaker brands. Two are dominating in that space at the moment. And of course, as you know, as are most things in, in, in statistics, right? You have two players that dominate and then a long tail of all of these new players and all of them, Via and several others, are vying for the same market. The market of young people who are urban, who have spending pressure, who are living in the urban centers, who want a piece of footwear that is cool and fits into a culture and buys them into a particular social ecosystem, right? But that young person doesn't and can't afford to buy a, perhaps a Nike Air Max. They can't afford to drop three, four thousand rand on a shoe, but they might drop a thousand bucks on a shoe, a thousand five hundred bucks on a shoe. They might even buy up, right? So that's the first component of their business model. The second component of the business model is identity. And so one of the things you notice is they will start releasing brands that are attached to some semblance of cultural identity. Here's how you know this is true. Because they will release a brand, or rather they will release a sub-brand within the brand category that is the particular shoe that they're selling, but it will only sell in South Africa. If you took that same product with that same brand and try to sell it on the favelas of Brazil, it wouldn't sell. Because the name of the shoe company and or the brand of the actual product that they're trying to merchandise under the shoe company has no cultural resonance in that market. Inversely, consider an Adidas, say, or a Nike, say, consider a, an Under Armour. And you know that they can operate east and west, north and south, and their products will sell. Because what they've figured out to do is to build a brand that is so strong that regardless of where you are in the world, the brand doesn't need you to culturally identify with it for you to buy it. One of the things then as a business strategist that I'm fascinated by is there is a point at which the things that help you scale your business limit your business ability to scale. Because for these particular young people, the reason they named their products 
after either indigenous names or uh, cultural lexicon. So you will call your product uh, something that fits into a particular culture or a particular group of young people. For instance, if I if I named my shoe in it, that's how a particular class or culture of young people in the United Kingdom say, isn't it? Now, if I named it in it, for those young people, it immediately identifies and catches onto the cultural lexicon. For everybody else in the world, I've got to educate them on what in it means. Does that make sense? And so what happens is in the traditional market that I'm operating in, I'm able to scale my business really, really quickly because they understand the cultural lexicon. The minute I move into a new market, before I can sell, I need to educate. And then I need to culturally adjust to that market. That is time and opportunity. This is why, in my view, you're beginning to see those founders diversify out of the sneaker business into other product categories. It's because even they know that they've reached terminal velocity in terms of the rate of growth. They've opened up every store you can open up in every single township mall. And, and there are, you just can't do it in Zambia. You, you can't do it in Nigeria. You can't do it in Morocco. It won't translate. The global brands, however, have figured out a way to do it. Coincidentally, to those founders, they're also facing a different problem, which is the problem of business continuity. If I were them, I would seriously be thinking about how do I onboard an executive team that comes from the global players, give away a substantial amount of earnings in share options, and say to them, over the next 10 years, I want you to internationalize this business because here is the challenge that those young people and founders are sitting with. If they don't scale, again, I'm talking a second S-curve. Over the next five years, those businesses will die and will become increasingly irrelevant. And here's why I'm saying that. Because right now, there is a lot of social equity built into putting up a billboard as a young black person running a business in South Africa. So if you're able to build a business to the stage where you can put up a billboard with your brand in it, people feel such a great sense of support and pride in that, that they support you. That will fade. As more and more people are doing it, the equity that that buys you will fade. Right now, there is a lot of uh, equity in giving your product, your clan name, or your, or, your, or, your, or your village name, or something like this. That, over time, will fade. We've been here before, by the way. You think about the incredible work of Wandi and Lokshan Culture. They captured the zeitgeist of young people at that time. I still vividly remember seeing Okabzela on the TV dressed in Lokshan Culture. Free advert for Lokshan Culture. When was the last time you saw somebody saying, I'm going to a Lokshan Culture shop? Or a Lokshan Culture branded product being something that was perhaps sponsoring a mega event? So there is a, a, a lifetime for how long these products can succeed. So the first point is that that's one of the limitations, right? The second thing that you would notice the sneaker cartel does, and by the way, you notice the same thing too in the sports drinks game. It's the same thing too in the sports wear game, because a lot of people aren't aware of this, but a lot of the sports wear is, is, is replicating or trying to do the same thing. It's the fitness influencers who are releasing their own sports wear and then posting it to their own fitness influencer community. Do you know where else you're seeing it? The personal care stuff, the facial care stuff. It's the makeup brands that are being done by a certain caliber of young person. It's the gin brands. I mean, now every single celebrity, if I put that in inverted commas in South Africa, has some sort of alcohol product, a champagne product or a gin product or something like this. And all of the business models are the same. Here's the business model. 
The business model is I don't put up the cost of production or the manufacture. Whether I'm selling the sneaker or selling the gin, right? Somebody else takes on the cost of manufacture, whether it happens in country or out of country, but I don't run the factory that makes the product. Somebody else does this. I get a finished product. I put my brand on it. And that brand has resonance because that's how I access my community. And then I sell. By the way, I know this because we studied it because I'm launching a VT product brand. And so we've learned how to reverse engineer the process of what they've done. So I don't want this to come across as a criticism. I'm simply helping you understand how that business model works. So that's the first element. The second element is you want to build a business where you've got strong distribution. Let me, I, let me, I, I say this to people all the time. First-time founders make the mistake of thinking the quality of the product wins. Second-time founders know that it's the quality of distribution that wins. Third-time founders know that it's the quality of the ecosystem that scales. You can have a terrible quality product as long as you can get it in the hands of every single customer who wants to buy it at a cost at which they can afford it and at the same price at which you can maximize profit you will make money because you can actually get it into the hands of your customer. It's the age-old story, right? First-time founders spend so much time obsessing over the quality of the product, they forget the use case. What's the use case? And what person, what's the person trying to use it for? So you notice then each of these young people using a particular distribution model, whether it's selling the energy drink at a traffic light, which, by the way, I think is exemplary and I think is absolutely incredible to take yourself and stand in a traffic light and sell a product in a South Africa where people are looking to caricature you, take a picture, put it on social media and say you are down and out because of that, to me speaks so much about where you've got to be in terms of your own personal self-efficacy and self-esteem. It's unbelievable. And kudos to, to, to particular gentlemen who's done that. So whether it's selling it on the street corner building brand hope and brand resonance, or opening up shops in the malls that are either in townships or close to the townships to limit the cost of accessing the product by the consumer who's in the actual township or the peri-urban area, sometimes even the rural area. The model is quite simple. Get product in, add value by putting a brand on it, and you, you, the, the value is the brand because you've built it over time, and in people's mind, it comes with a certain perception. And then what you do is you make it easily available for them to access by putting it in shops that are closest to them. The third, this is one of the mistakes many first-time founders make. You've got to make the cost or what I call the friction for buying your product as low as possible. In our VT Club 100, for instance, which is our mentorship platform, when you join the VT Club 100, you get seven-day free trial. A seven-day free trial, you go into our learning platform, our learning portal, you meet the tens of other members of our community from all over the world, you go into the book club, you join the masterclass, you can start watching our leadership material, all of that stuff, and all of that in seven days for free. Why would I do that? I do it because then it, it lowers the friction of me getting new consumers. See, if every single time I onboard a new customer, they must pay before they become a customer, then every single customer at the back of their minds constantly has this objection, but what happens if I don't like what you're selling? So the minute I say seven-day free trial, you go, oh, great. So I join for seven days, and if I don't like it, I don't stay? Absolutely. But if I do like it, I pay you? 
there you go. So we've reduced then the friction for the customer to buy the product. Figuring out a way to reduce the friction for customers to buy products is one of the most important things you can do when building, but especially when scaling a business. If you're selling a product, for instance, that's quite expensive, try one of these BNPL platforms, buy now, pay later. There's several out there where you buy the, where you sell the product and you as the vendor of the product earn the full amount, but the, the proprietor who's doing the buy now, pay later allows the customer to pay it off over a period of time, but take possession of the product on day one. Just try it. Lower the friction for the customer to do business. And then the fourth thing, when you're looking at running a business or getting into a business. This is the one for me where even if sometimes I tick the first three boxes, the fourth one is the one that stops me. Here's what it is. Can I see myself sitting in a management meeting discussing this product or this business 10 years from now? If the answer is no, typically I don't do it. Now, here's why that's important. Acceleration doesn't win the race. Endurance does. So what you want to do is to make sure that you can get into a business where you can get out of the starting blocks really quickly, accelerate all, all the way through to some level of prominence, and then have the endurance to keep building. And one of the things that runs out for founders that are easily excitable, that love new businesses, new ideas, is they have all of the sprint capacity, but very little endurance capacity. This is why I always say to founders, if you are the guy with the new ideas who's looking for new opportunities, your 2IC must be the person who says no to you so that you can stay stuck on the thing you're building. This is fundamental. Endurance wins the game. I think it was Reed Hoffman, the author of uh, Blitzscaling and co-founder of LinkedIn, who says, we live in an era where if you want to win, it's a marathon of sprints. So you're constantly in this marathon, but you're sprinting from one point to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's how we scale businesses. So, Paul, as you're thinking for yourself about what to do next and how to spend your time spend your money, spend your networks, your intellectual capacity. I hope that each of these four that I've shared with you give you a sense of how I approach business. Let me end as I began. If you don't agree with my fundamental foundation of how I get into business or what businesses I look at, then those four won't work for you. There are some people who will say, just put your money into a franchise. And, you know, you're going to put down X amount and every single month the franchise is going to pay you X amount. I can't do that and won't do that because that's just not the nature of the businesses that I like to do. There are some who will say, uh, get into a partnership with other people and, and give them the money and let them run. I can't do that either. I like stuff that takes my time, takes my creative capacity, takes my commitment, takes my networks and enables me to add value to the actual business that we're building and help the team scale the business. If you want to learn a bit more about how else to do this, maybe what you should do, visit our School of Scale, where we help founders that have reached $500,000 or more in turnover scale their businesses by 2x in 12 months. Go to schoolofscale.co. And again, if you want to find out a bit more about that mentorship community I told you about, vtclub100.com. You'll see all the information there. Right. Paul, thank you so much for that question. And to all of you, 
in the community. Sayonara. This podcast was proudly brought to you by My Growth Fund in partnership with Sound & Sounds Media.